Welcome everyone to the Manchester Green New Deal podcast, which is part of gndmedia.co.uk. I'm Adam Williams and I'm joined tonight by, by our very own doctor, giving the show some much needed credibility. It's Lucy Burke. How are you doing, Lucy? Very well, thank you, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Great to see you. I'm Manchester's finest journalist, Alex King. How are you doing, Alex? I'm well, thanks, Ad. It's always a pleasure joining you. Yeah, Alex, we were saying before the show, I've not physically seen you for a, for a good few weeks. What have you been up to? What are you writing at the moment? Uh, not so much writing as editing. So we've just wrapped up the Just As Well series for the for the new website, which is looking at a just transition around the world. And we've just finished that off with a brilliant piece from Kai Heron on war, ecocide and the just transition. So I'd recommend everyone check that out. Yeah, 100%. And I'm not just saying this. As a first series, I honestly don't think we could have done any better. You know, we had Max Isle on there, and it started with Max Isle, and we're finishing with Kai Herring. I mean, you can't get much better than that for the first for the first series. And that's all down to you, Alex. So really well done, mate. Really proud of you, the work you've done there, mate. Nice one. Cheers. Okay, so as a podcast, we at our core are trying to amplify two things. The first is essentially the promotion of climate activism, and the second is the exploration around themes or theories that could or should be considered when trying to formulate a Green New Deal. One of these theories is that of degrowth, which we have discussed at length with Manchester's own eminent degrowth scholar and good friend of the show, Mark Burton, and political ecologist Ricardo Mastina. However, such is the importance of degrowth as both a theory and a movement that we are delighted to have on the show tonight, ecological economist Timothy Parikh who has written a book titled The Political Economy of Degrowth. With the dire warnings of the latest IPCC report, we invited Timothy to hear both his thoughts on the report itself and where he thinks degrowth fits into the greatest fight humanity has ever faced. Timothy, a warm welcome to the show, mate. Bonsoir. Okay, so Tim, you first caught, caught my eye with a post that you did that was entitled 18 Tips to Make Your Company Look Green Even Though It's Not which I thought was brilliant and which we'll link to the show. But since then, I've followed your work quite closely. However, for those that don't know you, can you tell our audience a little about yourself, about your work, but also, and this is something we tend to ask our, our guests the first time they're on, when, was the first, when did you first come to the realisation that climate breakdown was not only real, but that you felt you had to dedicate a large part of your life trying to figure out how best to overcome it? Uh, I'll start by presenting myself, then I can just uh, save a bit of time for thinking about how to answer that second question. Um, I've been studying economics since I arrived at university, I guess, 15 years ago. And I've gone through a different, a lot of different kind of economics, neoclassical economics, a bit of Marxian economics, environmental economics, ecological economics, a bit of feminist economics at the end. So I've been doing this this whole adventure learning about the world of economics, which led me step after step into studying how the economy interact with nature overall. And I think, and here I'm transitioning to touching a bit on the second question too. I arrived to that question as a, as a very arrogant economist. You know, imagine myself a bit like a, a mechanic or a dentist rather. And climate change was just like a cavity in the mouth of capitalism. And I was like, well, I'm going to carbon tax this out of existence in like a weekend. Then I was just uh, smashed in, in a twofold way. First, I've realized the amplitude of the crisis and that this type of climate crisis I was experiencing through the lens of economics. So mostly, you know, looking at, for example, cost in terms of uh, loss of economic growth, loss of economic value was nothing compared to the reality of the crisis looked at from a social and biological perspective. So that was the first smash, slap in the face. Second slap when, was when I realized that the tools I had been given at university as a neoclassical economist were completely useless, not even in understanding the crisis, uh, but even also in solving it. So that's when I decided, well, that's not okay. Um, I really need to, to do the extra work, go find the skills, the concept, the theories that will allow me to not only be a good little obedient dentist of capitalist mechanics, but just to become an architect of, uh, you know, more sustainable economies. So that's what I've been trying to do, uh, writing my PhD on the topic of degrowth, which I finished in 2019. 
that's what uh, the work that I'm continuing now in my postdoc in, in Lund in Sweden, where I'm working on similar stuff, especially the, the funding of public services during a degrowth transition and in a post-growth economy. Yeah, I'm, I'm still uh, within the same topic I fell in love with out of necessity. Yeah. You know what, it really resonated with me because I think most of us were really passionate about something specific for a long, long time. And then the realization that sort of climate breakdown is a hundred times bigger and scarier than anything we've ever dealt with before. Um, I think we all sort of felt that, you know, as, as we've developed ourselves. We've just had the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which I know you've looked at in detail. What was your overall assessment of it? And was there anything particularly shocking, even for a climate scholar such as yourself? Wow. So, yeah, I've, I've been spending the last five days just binge reading uh, the report of Group 3, which is almost 3,000 pages long, and which comes just uh, only a few weeks after the report of Group 2, which was also as long. So here, there is something quite historical there, is that the report on adaptation for Group Number 2 mentions and discusses degrowth quite extensively in two different places. So that's historical since the beginning of IPCC reports to actively engage with the concept of degrowth and post-growth, which they bundled together. Uh, in the adaptation report, so I got very excited when I saw this and I wrote a little analysis. And of course, I was waiting for the mitigation report. And I was not disappointed when I saw that in the mitigation report, degrowth was discussed in four different places, actively engaged and as many different things. So, I mean, in the adaptation report, it's mostly discussed in two places. Well, let's say three places in two different chapters. First, in that big discussion about decoupling. We can talk about this a bit later, but green growth and the IPCC. But I think one of the most radical messages of this year's IPCC report is that green growth is, <laughs> well, an hypothesis that might not just be as true as we thought it was. So if that is true, if we cannot green growth, or if we cannot green all of growth, or if we cannot green growth, fast enough, then we would have to reduce production and consumption. You know, that's the type of choices where there are only two options. There's just none others. So in chapter one of the adaptation report, that's why they're bringing degrowth. Like some people have been just one, you know, reflecting on the idea of decoupling is not happening. And so therefore we need perhaps to reduce production and consumption. But here we're still within the mindset of, you know, forced reactive degrowth in the sense of, well, we have to respect some planetary boundaries, and so therefore we will just um, have degrowth. But in chapter 18, which you have this discussion in development models, in alternative visions of development, where they, they, they draw this nice typology of five kinds of development. You know, first development as economic growth uh, from the, the 1950s, and then uh, inclusive development, development as capabilities, ending with the fifth type of development starting in 2010, development as post-growth. And here, that's where we realize the full wealth, the full analytical power of degrowth, because it's not only this macroeconomic diet that you can talk about in decoupling discussion, it becomes a full-fledged, multifaceted paradigm of prosperity. So having this in the adaptation report, I was already, wow, that's big. And in the mitigation report, we have similar discussions in the four different places, maybe I'm not going to talk about all of them, but one of them is degrowth as an alternative, alternative vision of well-being. So here we, we remain in the same thing, alternative vision of the good life and of the economic implications of that vision. So that's interesting. There's also a discussion about modeling scenarios into the future and the fact that we often assume that somehow GDP will keep increasing forever and everywhere. Degrowth bringing into this alternative modeling pathways where GDP is not necessarily increasing. But then you see that that's also a quite simplistic understanding of degrowth, just as like, you know, decreasing, declining income levels. But we have another place in the mitigation report where they bring in degrowth as a more a transition pathway. So in their reference studies where they explore degrowth and they associate it 
with a variety of policies and new institutions like a basic income, universal basic services, a wealth tax, work time reduction, a job guarantee. So here now we're this is just not only a decline in income levels, this is actually a full-fledged transformation of the economy. So I'm very happy to see that these discussions are happening uh, within the IPCC and that IPCC scientists have just mobilized all of the, not all, but let's say, you know, some good quality literature on degrowth that are now for everyone to see in that big report. So, I mean, I've read some of your blog posts about this sort of following the release of the report. And I think you identify like lots of different ways in which degrowth is talked about. So it, it's, it's, it kind of takes on different dimensions at, at different points in, in, in the report. And I suppose it, it might be useful for listeners who aren't very sure about how, how to begin to think about this, just to talk a little bit about what, you know, what, what degrowth broadly refers to. But I'm also interested in the implications of this, for the language that we're using to talk about um, addressing climate change. So the idea of a Green New Deal which is tied to those earlier ideas of, you know, of a new deal, which are tied to ideas of growth, or the idea of a green industrial revolution, which is also tied to earlier ideas about growth and development. Um, how would we have to change our thinking <laughs> um, to be able to um, take on board the sort of degrowth idea? Because it's not an idea that is being used to kind of politically sell the idea of a response to climate change. Um, and I wondered if you sort of got any thoughts about that. Yeah, first, I mean, let me mention now, so I'm French uh, and we're having a presidential election actually this weekend. And for the first time in the primaries of the Green Party, there were a few candidates and one of them, Delphine Bateau, had degrowth as our main campaign concept. So this is the first wow, time. I didn't know that. This is historical. I mean, yeah. The last time it happened was Pierre Rabhi, the, the philosopher who coined the term happy sobriety in France, who tried to run for presidential election in 2002, but he could not gather enough uh, signatures to register. But this time Delphine Bateau ran a full primary campaign on the concept of degrowth, which this is also why, you know, she brought it back into the media uh, because of her. And that's admirable. Every single candidate in the presidential election where they're being interviewed, at the moment where they speak about ecology, the journalists ask them, what do you think about degrowth? I'm, I'm thinking that the change of language and let's say, let's say the, the constellation of concept around degrowth well-being economies, post-growth, Green New Deal, uh, sufficiency, a concept that is playing a huge role in the adaptation, in the mitigation report. It's being defined in the summary for policymakers. So these concepts are just becoming more and more actionable. They can more easily be mobilized uh, by uh, decision makers and, and politicians. So I think now, we need to link up these concepts because each of them is having, uh, is carrying a luggage. Each of them is having like strength and weaknesses. And we, I think we've been wasting too much energy as scholars and activists in, in fighting. In France, for example, it's been a few years of fight between decroissance, degrowth, and collapsology, which appeared in 2015. Whereas like these two concepts really just are convergent. They have more in common than differences. So it would have been better to articulate uh, the similarities and synergies between collapsology and voluntary simplicity and aperiodic sobriety and well-being economies and degrowth and post-growth and make that into a, a nice little Avenger-like uh, you know, toolbox of progressive yeah. concepts. Yeah, I get that. Then, okay, perhaps I should tell a bit more about what degrowth is. I think that's a good starting point. Um, it's a, now, now you're going to think I'm just doing everything just about France. But 
the concept of degrowth actually was born in France. I, I, I don't say this because I'm a Frenchman, but this is true. Historically true in 2002, the concept of décroissance durable, so sustainable degrowth, was coined by anti-consumerist activists to criticize sustainable development, following the post-development logic of global justice, to say in order to have sustainable development in the global south, well, we would have to have sustainable degrowth in the global north, if only to liberate you know, the climate space and the natural resources and the labor power necessary to just meet uh, unmet needs in, in developing countries. And that concept became hugely popular in many neighboring countries, especially in Italy and Spain, but also Belgium, Switzerland, Quebec. And then it was translated in English, and you guys know everything. Starting then, you know, the, the Paris conference in 2008, and then it boomed into that uh, luxuriant literature. I mean, now, latest number, I can tell you, the degrowth literature is made of 541 peer-reviewed articles in English, published since 2007. So that's fairly huge. And so what degrowth is, is linked to that history, not only born in France in 2000, but born in France as a rebound of the emergence of, let's say, growth criticism in the 1970s. We're thinking of, we're celebrating the 50 years of the Meadows Report this year. So we remember 1972, the Meadows Report, 1971, Nicolas Georges Kurogan, the entropy law and the economic process, the birth of ecological economics with people like Ermin Daly, Kenneth Boulding, the first criticism of national accounting by Marilyn Waring. All of these, throughout the six, end of the 60s and 70s, anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist, anti-imperialist, eco-feminist thought was somehow picked up, dug out by these uh, people at the beginning of the 2000s, like Paul Ariès, Serge Latouche, Michel Le Pézan, François Schneider, Vincent Liéger, who kind of like made the, the kind of first blueprint for degrowth as an analytical concept. This is why now, when you look at degrowth, it, you cannot just define it as a kind of phenomenon, just a shrinking of an economy, just like a recession. It's a very, it's a multifaceted concept. I, mean, like, I like to call it a societal project in the same way that, you know, people always ask me, you know, what should grow, what should degrow? It would be, the, answering this question would be as stupid as like asking, you know, what, what do you put in common and what do you not put in common in communism? What do you sustain and what do you not sustain in sustainability? <laughs> so degrow, the way I like to define it is this democratically planned, reduction of production and consumption in rich countries that reduces environmental pressures and inequalities while improving well-being. That's my full definition there. There are just four characteristics. I mean, you get the basic. When you hear about degrowth, it's a bit like the opposite of growth in the sense of like you produce and consume less. So reduction of production and consumption is the basics. And then on top of that, you add four characteristics. The first one is sustainability. So you reduce production and consumption in order to reduce environmental pressures. So that's the first one. The second has to do with justice. So you don't degrow everything. It's a selective. You degrow countries that are overproducing and overconsuming. that are living beyond their sustainable means. And you also do a double selectivity within these countries in terms of households, uh, depending on you know, different different powers of production decisions and different lifestyles in terms of consumption. So the social justice is feature number two. You have the well-being feature, and that's a tougher one. But I, I've been with, with other scholars uh, like Jason Hickel, for example, arguing that capitalism and especially growth-based capitalism, or rather, let's say, growth-obsessed capitalism is a quite inefficient system to satisfy needs for all. Maybe it satisfies needs for oh, a minority yeah. of a population very well. Yeah. Needs for all are not well satisfied. So here the hypothesis is by switching to another system, because this is really what degrowth is about, is about getting to a post-capitalist economy. 
And so reducing production and consumption and reorganizing the economy might be a way of actually improving well-being. If you can reduce inequality, if you can find the means of investing in high-quality public services, if you can find ways to restore ecological health and certain, uh, you know, also the the wealth of social systems that are not counted in GDP because they're based on gift, reciprocity, and trust, all of that. So here we have our third feature. And then the final one is uh, democracy. Planned democratic is, is, is very important to make the difference between a recession, which would be accidental, like the pandemic, which was basically, you know, pushing the pause button on the remote control of capitalism. That, that was it. Nothing was transformed. Just like, you know, the music stopped for a while and then it starts again. Degrowth, on the other, on the other hand, is really a, a plan. It's a, you know, if it's a societal project, you need to make specific decisions about what kind of production and consumption to reduce first, how to reallocate certain resources, and in the spirit and following the tradition of, you know, the anarchist tradition of, of degrowth, um, which I tie very much to, to Murray Bookchin and, and authors like this, these decisions can only be made by uh, participative democratic forums as, as, as participative as you can have them. Because sustainability, justice, and well-being actually depend on who you will have in the tables and of the quality of the decisions you will make about these big questions of political economy, what to produce, how much to produce, and how to produce it. So I would say that this is my basic definition of of degrowth. Uh, Tim, I just want to go back, just briefly back to the IPCC report. Um, And I'm just wondering... In one of your posts, you say that degrowth is mentioned, I think, in the primary text, it's seven times, but overall, maybe about 28 times. I don't want you to go through every single one, of course, but where do you think the argument for degrowth is at its strongest within that report? Uh, That's a a good question. I think it's straight at the beginning. So the mention number one, which I quite like, it's in the introduction. They just mention briefly degrowth and then they just brush it away. But just after presenting it, you know, they say something like literature on degrowth, post-growth and post-development questions the sustainability and imperative of more growth, especially in already industrialized countries, and argues that prosperity and the good life are not immutably tied to economic growth. And this then is just launching other reflections elsewhere, deep reflections about what is well-being, how do we measure well-being, how does well-being compare to other financial objectives like economic growth. And I think this is just opening the Pandora's box of, of critical questions that leads to the realization that capitalism is a deeply maladapted system for the 21st century. So having this like uh, straight in the first chapter is strong because then it opens and opens up for chapter five. I mean, chapter five is so epic. I could spend the whole night just singing songs about chapter five, which I will not do right now. <laughs> Maybe at the end of the show, mate. <laughs> uh, but for the first time in the history of IPCC reports, there is a full chapter on demand-side strategy. So for those of you who are not quite used to IPCC jargon, uh, demand-side strategies, demand-side measure, demand management, anything that has to do with the stuff we decide to uh, consume, the goods and services. So if you're looking at, for example, reducing the emissions of the transport sector, a supply-side approach would be like, well, maybe we're going to try to invent electric cars and produce more electric cars. Demand side approach would be how can we minimize the need for cars? So you see how that fit. There's the logic of efficiency on the supply side, green growth, and there's the logic of sufficiency on the demand side, degrowth. So now basically you have one chapter about degrowth. That's how I see it. Of course, in chapter five, they don't just go calling it degrowth, but 
they call it sufficiency, they call it demand side strategies, they call it reduction in there. It's a chapter that is strongly anchored into political ecology view with inequality coming back. Because of course, when you talk about levels of consumption and demand, well, these are not the same. They're just strongly influenced by where you live, how much money you have, what kind of job you have, what kind of background you have, and, and many different other things. Absolutely, yeah. And I, for one, would like to hear this song at the end of the show. <laughs> Uh, to chapter five. Tim, I read your 29 thesis, The Political Economy of Degrowth, and what's really interesting about that is that you critique degrowth theory to date in several ways. I wondered if you could expand on, on your critiques here for our listeners. When I arrived into degrowth, so around 2015, I found, let's say, a very... Chaotic. It's like, you know, you just find an attic you didn't know existed. There's just full of stuff, but it's like dusty. They're not organized. You cannot see, you know, that's how I felt the degrowth field was because it had been accumulating a lot of concept over the years without too much selection. So it was just, you know, adding everything on it. And so it was really a mess. And so that was my first critique. It's very difficult to understand what degrowth is. It's also very difficult to understand where it comes from. Then it's also very difficult to imagine the implications, the concrete implications on how we work, how we organize property rights, uh, the type of money we have, how do we grow food, the relation we have with time in general and with each other's on markets and elsewhere. And also the question of the transition, the question of the how. So all of these questions, you had bits and bobs, but they were unsolvable because without defining degrowth, well, you cannot really answer the question of its implications. Without the question of the implications, you cannot really ask yourself the question of the transition. And and you cannot define degrowth, but really not without understanding its history. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to clean the attic. Took my mop a couple of years read it all and organized it like a nice little stamp, a collectioner. Let me give you an example. At the time, and I think that's still true today, there's not much in the degrowth literature about money. So that's one of my favorite topics as a political economist, different kind of monies, uh, what kind of relations come with monies, uh, the relation between monetary dynamics and ecology, all these kind of questions that are being explored by monetary theorist in in sociology, anthropology, philosophy, and economics. And degrowth was kind of like mentioning local currencies and and banking reforms and a bit of stuff here and there, but they were not really mobilizing the wealth of that literature. So that's kind of one of the the bridge I tried to create. And same thing with work. There was a lot of discussions about work time reduction, but I felt like there was this all literature in anarchist economics about post-work, about more disruptive, a change completely in how we come to define what is work, how do we make the divide between productive and unproductive work, and how do we socially organize work and the valuation of these different types of work. So I've, I've tried to bring this in into degrowth and use, let's say, degrowth as a bit as a canvas uh, for me to imagine, to draw uh, the contours of a post-capitalist economy. And since you wrote that in 2019, the world's changed a lot. You know, it's experienced a pandemic. Do you think things have substantially moved on since you wrote that? Because I was struck, for example, by the fact, I think you mentioned earlier, the IPCC mitigation report outlines degrowth as a transition pathway. So that kind of suggests that things might have you look at like one of the last paragraph of the conclusions of the thesis where I'm like, you know, asking readers, like, imagine thought experiments, imagine in, in a year, the economy stop, everything all of a sudden stop. And then we're forced to sit and reflect on the kind of economy we want, blah, blah, blah. And then I published this goes online March 5th, 2020. Just before, you know, France goes under lockdown. And then I'm like, oh, my God, it's, it's happening. It's trending. Yeah. So it's, it, it's I've, I've seen for the first time, like, 
I think everyone has seen in the modern history of the capitalism, capitalism for the first time, the economy is stopping. And for the first time, we get this out of economy experience where we can look at the economic game from the outside then realize, oh, what, do I, what do I work like this? What, what do we produce this? Why do I work for this company? Why do we have a Maastricht treaty? Why do we measure you know, public debt this way? Why do we have GDP? Who created GDP? All of these questions started to, to arrive. And I think that that was the perfect moment of realization. So, but as you can imagine, during the pandemic, uh, we did not ditch capitalism and we did not just build that uh, uh, smallest, beautiful, sustainable, equitable, uh, low-tech, uh, frugal economy. Uh, we kind of like did everything to kick back and come back and, and start again the, the engine of capitalism with all its negative social and ecological consequences. So we kind of like missed that moment. But I, I think what I wrote in 2019, and when I come back to it now, because I'm, I'm just about to publish a book in France, French, uh, it'll come out in September, where I'm just writing a, a wide audience book about the thesis, following the same structure. So I've had to update and, of course, write a bit more about France. But I find like the argument is just as even more valid now than it was before, because the, the pandemic, this crisis has really made the best argument possible that, you know, the economy is embedded in a society that is embedded in ecology. And, you know, when you have a virus, when you somehow disrupt the living world, you can get some consequences. And, and same thing, when you disrupt the social world, you can get some consequences. And, and so now I think within that view of, of double embeddedness of the economic within the social, within the ecological, the idea of degrowth becomes even more urgent because we realize our maladapted, how, how ill-proportionate the economy is. You know, I like this figure made by the Stockholm Resilience Center when they show the, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, as a waiting cake, where you have the ecological goals, the four ecological goals at the bottom, then the social ones, then the economic one. Today, we're trying, like a kid would, you know, to fit the economic into the holes of the cake. And we can't because the economy has taken such an enormous size, not only materially, but also symbolically in our minds and especially in our public governance, that we cannot fit it back within this finite uh, society and biosphere. I mean, you speak so compellingly about degrowth. It's it's difficult to understand why we're not, <laughs> everybody's not kind of rushing to to do this and I, I suppose that's what my my question really is so I, I think it's really helpful to think through some of the structural barriers and obstacles that we might face in in shifting the ways in which people are thinking and I suppose one of the things that I'm really conscious of are a, a sort of generational differences and um, for instance thinking about the ways that kind of pension funds work as well and um and how pensions are often tied to investment in, for instance, fossil fuels mm. and so on. And then what it means to begin to disentangle those considerations. But also, I suppose, how we understand this in the context of a kind of rentier capitalism as well. In other words, of a system that is based on in debt and on wealth and, you know, all of the things that we we engage with, kind of streaming services, um, renting houses and so on from people, which aren't really to do with production in a traditional sense as well, but which are creating vast and uh, kind of intransigent inequalities, aren't they, sort of socially? So I, I don't know if you could say a bit more about that, but I think that would that would be really interesting about how the arguments that we can make around those kinds of areas and how we can actually sort of move forward in a way that doesn't entrench inequalities for certain groups of people as well, sort of socially? I'm These days, so I published a thesis. I get semi-famous in France, uh, get invited to a lot of different places, did like 150 different events, stuff like this podcast and, and news and TV and radio and stuff. 
Um, and then now I get invited to talk about degrowth to public officials and corporations, big ones, bad guys. And <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure causing it. You know, I'm going there and I, well, Gringos is not a thing, doesn't work. Um, the, the, the profit motive is an outdated uh, you know, engine of inequality that is not only just wrecking the planet, but also just going against collective well-being. So basically, I'm I'm just telling them face to face that the task is not to mitigate climate change. The task is to ditch capitalism into the history books. And of course, when I say this, I'm expecting a lot of resistance, which I don't get. Although I get resistance, but this kind of like, I always get the resistance. Yeah, but is not capitalism just perfectly tailored to human nature? So, you know, these type of, of very like naive first, so, so people kind of unveil this at first, they maybe try to defend, but look, no, there's data about this, like, like they do on decoupling. But I'm, I'm so used to this, that it just doesn't work with me anymore. So I'm like, okay, I shoot down every single data they have to show that they're wrong. Do this one, two, three times. And after that, there's always something very candid that comes out like, yeah, but are we going to be happy without capitalism or, you know, this type of stuff? So now... This is interesting because we realize that we have been wasting a lot of time on institutional discussion of things we thought were unchangeable. Pensions are an extremely good example because people think somehow that you need economic growth to finance pensions in the same way that people instinctively believe that you need economic growth to create jobs, to eradicate poverty, to reduce inequality, and to finance the welfare state. That's not true. I mean, that's just literally, theoretically, empirically proven not to be true. Uh, just to give you one example out of, you know, that trickling down, trickle down theory uh, for many decades, neoliberal economists, neoclassical theorists have defended the idea that somehow if the wealthy get wealthier, somehow that wealth is going to trickle down to the poorest. And so economic growth lifts all boats. As you've heard the story, here comes Thomas Piketty, <laughs> kind of our superhero leftist economist <laughs> with um, 30 years of heavy duty empirical data showing that, no, actually it's uh, false. It has never happened in the history of capitalism. Actually, it's the opposite. Capitalism in its normal mode of functioning concentrate wealth upward. And then now, Piketty published his first book in 2013, second one, 2019. Each of them is a thousand page of, you know, very difficult to attack historical empirical analysis. And now, like, nobody can defend trickle-down theory. You go to an economic department, you pronounce trickle-down, you will be shot down. They will throw you Piketty's book in your face. And now I think we're reaching the same <laughs> watershed scientific moment for green growth. I expect after the IPCC report, like in a in a few years, like people will be ashamed to have been, you know, to have <laughs> been advocates of green growth in the same way that people probably were ashamed after Galileo's trial. So now we need to make the difference between all of these kind of like infrastructural practical barriers that we thought were fundamental laws of the universe, like the public debt of the Maastricht Treaty that should not, God forbid, ever been crossed, except during the pandemic where we paused it and actually realized that nothing happens when you cross it. So we need to differentiate these from the real questions. That's what I call the fundamental question of political economy, about what is our relation to inequality? You know, what is kind of the, the differential of wage inequality that we consider to be acceptable? How do we make decisions about what to produce? We've done it during the pandemic. For the first time, capitalism had to ask itself the question of drawing a line between the essential and the superfluous, not only by states. Like in France, I remember you would go to the supermarket, you could buy food, but if you wanted to buy a PlayStation, you could not. They actually taped blankets 
on the toys, on the stuff you could not buy with the, you know, the state forbids you to buy these stuff because it's deemed a non-essential item. That was very awkward, you know, very awkward, but it's, it, it shows that somehow these decisions about what's essential and superfluous are made every day. Today, they're made by for-profit companies that decide to produce whatever is most lucrative. They could be made in an alternative economic system by people congregating in a participatory democratic way to decide, you know, what they want, how do they want to spend the time, and how do they uh, prefer to work together. These decisions could be taken, you know, within worker uh, managed cooperatives at the level of municipality when you decide for a public budget, at the regional level, at the national level. They could be also uh, multi regional, multinational levels. You know, um, anything is, is possible, but the questions don't change. They remain this very fundamental, you know, what to produce, how much, and how to produce it. Timothy, I think one of the big obstacles for degrowth is how it's how the narrative is interpreted by by the mainstream, by the you know the man and woman on the street. Um, in a recent article, you touch on a paragraph in the IPCC report that states vital dimensions of well-being correlate with consumption, but only up to a threshold. And then this you relate to what you call the saturation hypothesis, which I found really fascinating. Could you just elaborate on this saturation hypothesis for us, please? We go back to 1974. We have this guy, Richard Estelin, American economist, that conducts a, a funny study. Back then, it was a strange study. The guy studies the correlation between GDP per capita and happiness, which is measured, you know, subjective well-being on a scale from zero to 10 by asking people, are happy are you? And he does this for a few countries and compare over time. And what he realizes is that at very low level of GDP per capita, if you increase your income, well, your happiness is going to increase pretty much proportionally. But after a certain threshold of GDP per capita, then it plateaus. That's the saturation hypothesis. You know, this like there's a threshold after which increasing GDP does not increase well-being. So back then, of course, you had all the economists and the well-being like, oh, but yeah, it's a zero to 10 scale. So of course it plateaus and then it's happiness. Who cares about happiness anywhere? Blah, 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 blah. But that started as a, a literature. So there was someone else that did the same study was GDP per capita and life expectancy, finding same saturation uh, hypothesis. People now have done so. Andrew Fanning, Dan O'Neill have published a wonderful study in November 2021, this, what do they, the social shortfall and ecological overshoot of nation. Probably my favorite study of 2021, where they compare a lot of countries based on their state of ecological overshoot and social performance measured with 11 criteria. For the nerds out there, the 11 criteria come from the inner circle of Kate Rayworth Donut. So you have a bit of everything. There's subjective happiness. There's also life expectancy, employment, uh, health, all that stuff. And what the study finds is same, same plateauing. If you look at countries that have very high social performance and you put them on the scale based on their overshoot, you will see Australia, Canada, and the US at enormous states of overshoot, ecological overshoot. And you will see Finland, Germany, South Korea, Sweden, France, and Costa Rica reaching the same level of well-being measured with these 11 indicators, but with a portion of the overshoot. Same thing if you look at you know, the World Happiness Index, the World Happiness Report every year, and you see that Costa Rica is a happier country than France. I think Costa Rica was 12, France is 16. Costa Rica has one third of the French GDP per capita. So the point here is that many of these countries have reached this saturation point. And so in these contexts, it is foolish to keep focusing on economic growth because it does not, as Piketty showed, it increases inequality with lower collective well-being. We know that also empirically. But it also fails to contribute in increasing happiness, 
uh, available time, life expectancy, the quality of public services, all these stuff that really matter for everyday happiness. So that's then we can come back to you know the third characteristics of my definition. This is because of this saturation hypothesis that we can actually reduce GDP per capita, reorganize the economy. If you take the, the let's say you take the United States and you completely dismantle their for-profit private healthcare system to transform it into something closer to the French system where you have guaranteed universal healthcare, then you will realize that actually with a smaller GDP and a smaller GDP per capita, you will get a better health. So it would be a more efficient economy. And that's, I'm giving you another analogy that I'm developing in the book. I stopped to talk about economic growth because I think it's a misguided metaphor. What is being measured by GDP is not growth, is agitation. Imagine you're looking at an ant hill and you see all the ants doing their little business. And all of a sudden, you know, you just throw a bucket of water or something and you see, you know, they're going to move everywhere and you see agitation. Well, GDP measures precisely this, but with monetary transactions. So when an economy gets agitated, when a lot of things happens on monetary markets, GDP goes up. But so if you have a lot of forest fires, well, a lot of firefighters will have to go to work and we will have to produce all the stuff that firefighters need. We'll have to get agitated. But it's actually a waste of time because if you had limited the fire in the first place, well, you would not get agitated. So you would not get the GDP. But in terms of well-being, you would be better off. So now we can think of this as degrowth as a form of, um, of chill. <laughs> That's precisely this. To say like certain sectors of the economy only exist today because they just somehow believe that they create financial value. Even though from a feminist ecological perspective, I would say that they destroy social and ecological value to turn it into a tiny bit of money. When you go and cut down a tree and you lost, you know, very valuable ecosystem services, well, you just get poorer. Yeah, maybe you get a few bucks out of it, but you've lost something, probably irreversible. Uh, same thing if I, I was thinking about this quite personally, you know, when I finished the thesis, I uh, got unemployed because, you know, I was not under contract anymore. And I got offered this book contract, but when you get a book contract, they don't give you any money because that's capitalism. Uh, and so I was like, right now, I could just, if I just take the time to do what I wanted to do, so translate my, use my thesis to rewrite Wikipedia pages, for example, and do a lot of explaining what degrowth is about on Postcat and stuff, I would create literally no value on GDP. Whereas if I go and work for McDonald's, then you know that will create, a job and income and GDP. So from an economic textbook, one activity is wealth creation. We're actually going to work at McDonald's after we're, you know, publishing a PhD instead of just, you know, educating the public, writing Wikipedia article is actually a, a destruction of potential wealth to invite people now to, to think about the economy always with this triple account, financial wealth, social wealth, ecological wealth. That's the minimum. And when you look at an activity and you ask yourself, what is the value added, which is the key concept in economics? What is the value added? This is also what GDP is supposedly measuring. Well, you need to look at the hidden flows, the hidden social flows. So if I'm working at McDonald's, maybe there's a lot of social relations I cannot do. I stop chatting to my old neighbor. I stop taking care of my grandmother. I stop participating into the local soccer club where I train. Kids, I stop teaching uh, chess online. I stop writing Wikipedia articles. I stop volunteering. So all of these activities, they stop. So it's this transfer of wealth. Same thing ecologically. Uh, so if you decide to just you know work and cut trees, then that's also this give you a transfer of 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 wealth. And so every time we ask value added, we need to make the difference. And that's I, I, I'm gonna. That's really the. The key theoretical transformation of economics for the 21st century is to completely redefine the difference between value, true, genuine value added, and just value transformation. 
Tim, that's really interesting on like the theoretical inflections, what's required. I suppose my question to circle back on what Ads was saying about the mainstream and what you were saying about consulting corporations on degrowth. In those scenarios where you're consulting corporations on degrowth, you're you're quickly encountering uh, a, a sort of f- a futility thesis kicks in where they'll say they'll invoke economic laws. You know, this is how it must be. Uh, it's futile to sort of resist that. What would be your advice to people who like encounter that kind of flawed logic? Like, what what's the retort? So I'm gonna I'm gonna say something quite paradoxical. Um, in the line of don't trust economists, which might seem like a very naive statement, but very often I have found when you argue something in the line of very progressive, you know, political ecology, co-feminism, positive development, stuff like this, people, the barrier are always having to do with economic feasibility. So they will be like, oh, but we can't because the market will crash. We can't because, you know, the monetary system works like this. We can't because, you know, property system and the World Trade Organization are organized straight that way. And they will try to smoke you out with unreadable models, complex equations, and just numbers picked out of many different hats to prove that they are right. Um, but again, at the bottom, these discussions, they're about something very simple that everyone can understand. So I think the first reflex is we need to be very critical towards the science that we've been accumulating in economics. And I say this as a scientist, okay? So I'm not saying we should ditch science as a whole. I'm just, we realize that a, a huge swath of economics as a science today has completely lost its usefulness. A huge swath of neoclassical theory now just has just earned its place into museums, and that's pretty much it. Theories about decoupling and green growth, and I'm not saying everything is useless, but any economic model where you have a production function where nature is not present cannot be used seriously to understand the world in the 21st century now that we know what we know about the living world. Maybe that was acceptable in the 50s, borderline maybe. Now it is not. So for me, I always want to give people like empower yourself and your friends. You don't need a PhD in economics to oppose this. And I'm giving you the best example of that. I've studied economics for 15 years. I've got a bachelor, two masters, and a PhD in economics. All right. That's my full-time job. I'm working at a school of economics. I teach economics. I write papers in economics. I go to this and I talk to people and they tell me, oh, that's because you've not understood. You need to, you know, learn more about economics. And I'm like, what? Wait a second here. I'm like, (laughs) when does it end? You know, this type of argument I've heard at every single moment of my life. Oh, you'll see later. Do a master's, you'll understand. You'll see later. Do a PhD. What's the next step, Tim? Get a Nobel Prize, then you'll be able to have an opinion about the economy. You do this, it's a discourse of delay, you smoke people out, and you uh, protect what sociologists call the superiority of economists. Tim, just one final question. Um, I'm just going to go straight back to the intro where we spoke about um, when I first saw you, and it was on Twitter, and your post around um, greenwashing in companies. Um, and you listed 18 of them. I'm just wondering, what are um, the most, even the most common greenwashing techniques of companies that you've noticed or the mm. most insidious? If you could just whittle those 18 down to maybe one or two uh, that, that, like I say, are the most common okay. or the most insidious. Okay, I'm going to give you one. And here, remember that when we're talking about this at the level of a company, it also applied the level of full state when we're talking about green growth. Okay, so let's say you're a company, and you're going to calculate your carbon footprint of your activity. Then you're going to choose to include certain emissions and exclude others. That's what we call scope. So you can, let's say, I'm um, producing chairs. I can only include scope one emission. So I include the emission from the electricity that I use in the building. 
where I build the chairs. And that's it. That's my scope on emissions. That's my footprint. But then people, you know, then you can say, oh, you know what? Actually, this we're going to stop to produce. We're going to outsource this to a South Asian country that's going to pre-produce part of our chairs. And then from a scope one emission perspective, that means actually your emissions decrease. You've decoupled. You're still producing the same number of chairs. From a real climate perspective, actually the situation is worse because you've outsourced part of your production in a country that doesn't have environmental regulation as strict as in your country. So the production actually is lost in carbon efficiency compared to when you were doing it yourself. And so here you can see the first type of greenwashing where you can have this illusion of decoupling that is actually at the global level not happening. So now is a surprising fact. That's the difference in decoupling between production-based indicator, scope one, and consumption-based. The consumption-based indicator that take into account the assumptions along the life cycle. So if you drive, if you buy a car in France, it takes into account you know, all the emissions you needed to produce the car wherever it was produced, to extract the minerals, to build the car, wherever these were extracted, and all the emissions during the transport of the car and all of that. So these indicators, they came around the beginning of the 2010. If you look at the 900 empirical studies on decoupling that exist in the, in the literature since the 1990, 92 of them use production-based indicators. So you bet 10 years ago, a lot of people like France were just claiming loud uh, that, oh, look, we're decoupling. Look, we're just you know, growing our GDP and decreasing our emissions. And now we get new indicators where actually we realize you are not decoupling. You are just outsourcing your most pollutive activities in other countries. Now we call them pollution haven, uh, like tax haven, because they have very low environmental lows. So uh, that's a dirty trick. It's a dirty trick where you realize that the better data we have, every time there's a new indicator that come in, now it was true for carbon, now that we have indicator on consumption, based material footprint. Now we realize also that certain countries that supposedly decoupled were not decoupled it's because they were just importing a shitload of materials from everywhere. Yeah, brilliant. Like you said, we'll link that that tweet, um, that thread to the show because I thought it was it was brilliant. Timothy, you've been a fantastic guest, mate. There's loads of... Uh, other aspects that we wanted to get into, but we've run out of time. So maybe we can get you on in the future. But oh, yeah. you've been fantastic, mate, and I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, with pleasure. It was fun. This is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers, and the conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Timothy, who have you got for us this week? I'm, I'm thinking right now, you know, I've spent the whole week just dissecting the IPCC report. And I was doing this, I'm thinking of all the people part of Scientist Rebellion that have actually you know, yeah. taken direct action. And I've got a lot of respect uh, for them um, doing yeah. all of that. So I really give them a big shout out there. I also really want to thank um, one particular scientist, Julius Steinberger, uh, because I've spent, the show. Oh, I've, I've spent good amount of time reading chapter five. She's a contributing author in chapter five. And I'm, I'm sure she's been determined. She's, she's been absolutely essential in bringing the view of degrowth into chapter five and making this IPCC report uh, as radical as it is. So uh, cheers to you, Julia, and cheers to all the scientists rebellion. That's brilliant, Timothy. Yeah, and just as well, uh, Julia put on Twitter today that her mum's a bit poorly at the moment. So on behalf of the show, Julia, we wish her a speedy recovery. Um, Lucy, who have you got for us I this week? I was going to say Julia, but I'm going to say um, my comrade Ben Crawford is at University of Liverpool and they've just launched um, a Green New Deal claim as part of a trade union claim there. And I think that's so important. So oh, just yeah. a big shout out to him because he's doing great work and I'm hoping to work with him um, on, a, on on sort of broader sort of trade union uh, sort of action on on sort of Green New Deal. So, yeah, that's this is this is a shout out yeah. to Ben. Yeah, that's awesome, Lucy. Nice one. Alex, who have you got? My shout out this week goes to Susie Lawrence, who's the illustrator who's produced all of the artwork for the Just As Well series. They're really brilliant. Just wanted to give a shout out to her and to say thank you for making the series what it was. 
Yeah, yeah, a fantastic artwork. Yeah, I, I second that. Brilliant. Okay, a big thank you to everyone that is listening. I hope you will give the show a like and a share. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guillermund, and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash GND Media UK.